Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Alright, ready to go? Yep. Ready, steady. Hello, Internet, and welcome to Polycast episode 402. I'm one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears fan, joined as always by Canis Albinus. Art is hard. Makalua. I still need more caffeine. And hopefully not needing as much caffeine than me and team. And you know, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> oh. All right, let's go to the news topics we've got for today. Did we say it was episode 402? I forget. Yes. Yes. Okay. Pardon me if I'm a little off. Uh, Today, or rather three days ago for us, but by the time this comes out, it will definitely be true for a couple weeks. Old World, Soren Johnson's game about um, the... uh, Yes, it's basically a Civ... We all know what it is. It came out on Steam finally, and... um, Kind of out of the blue, too. Just got the email. Hey, it's available. It was not out of the blue. I had it on my wish list since, uh, I think, January. because I I did as well, but I think the release date was, like, to be determined, like, up until it just released. Well, yeah. You find out the release date by checking when the Epic release date was and just adding it. It was released from Epic, and then it's no longer tethered to Epic. Released from their exclusivity. Yes. Um... So At least far, from the shackles. So far, this is uh, three days after, or two days after the game has been released. It has very positive reviews, so that's good news. Have any of us and had I'm... a chance to play it yet? I have not. Nope. I bought it, installed it, have not had a chance to play it yet. I have not either. So I guess we will just leave this as a news topic and not discuss any of the gameplay because we don't have any experience with it, and maybe come back to that later. Oh, I'm sure we will have plenty to say about it in the coming weeks. Definitely. Well, slightly sadder news. Uh, long time, uh, long time poster from. I mean, man, and we're Candace is worried about brain problems today. <laughs> Apologies. Podcast. Yeah, apolog. Yeah, exactly. Or polycast because we came from a Poulton.net and one of the longtime posters, Lancer, passed recently. There's a thread over there on Poulton. You know, a few people, a few people had some memories to share about that. But also going through the thread, there's been a couple of other uh, longer time posters that because of just things happening. I mean, for Lancer, it was COVID. For an, uh, Scribbler, it was an infection and complications because he was in an area where they'd had a typhoon recently. I think they said Ra, who was another longtime guy, had also passed at some point. Oh, and wow. I didn't realize that. I, yeah. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that one either. So they're talking about maybe doing a, putting a permanent sticky thread somewhere as an in-memoriam thread, because it's partly because a lot of the people that place, I mean, I guess because Civ's age group skews a little older, so there's more people who might actually pass away or something like that, but also... Given the past few years, a lot of people, surprisingly, you wouldn't think have. So, and but for anyone who's been here since the Apolton days or people who know that, oh, he's also 
I think his nick was CFC Lancer for the people over on Fanatics. So maybe that or the other two guys. And, you know, uh, this was brought to our attention by Dan Q uh, because Lancer was a guest on Polycast back in the second season. So 13 years ago, 14, uh, 12 years ago, maybe. But he was on episode 47. And we will probably have a link to that in the show notes, just in case anyone wants to go and listen to that. Um, I would be more prepared if I knew that there had been other people who had died, but I believe Ra was on the show at least once. Yes, I was about to say that, yeah. I'm I'm relatively certain that he was on episode 12, because everybody was. But I don't know... uh, Without doing extensive research on our outdated website, I would have to look up which episodes he was on. And I do not know about the third person. I forget his name. I feel so bad. Scribbler. Scribbler. Starts with a Z. Yeah, starts with a Z. Scribbler. I just saw that, like, the other day. It sucks. I didn't know about it. Well, when uh, a game has been around as long as Civ, and uh, was created as long ago as Civ was... This kind of thing just eventually happens, so... This is the part where if we were more organized, we would play taps, but... <laughs> or if we had a soundbot or something? Uh, yeah. Well, if we had a soundbot, I would play some sort of, like, I don't know. I would try to play something that was appropriate. Perhaps we can settle for a moment of silence in memoriam. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think we should do that on the polycast, because dead air is a thing, but... If you're listening... Uh, to the recording later on, pause it for 30 seconds to have a moment of silence in memoriam if you uh, knew any of these people, or even if you didn't, because, yeah, this is all super tragic. Okay, let's uh, bring up the mood just a little bit and move on to our next topic. Bringing up the mood, I mean, I guess if we're going to go straight into the salt. Uh, this one's by Vivor, the uh, Monument Placement Simulator to a Game, Evolution of Civ 6. And I guess you can get a feeling that Vivor feels that uh, Civ 6 started off as one of the quote-unquote dark ages of Civ, so to speak, uh, but became a good game again uh, after Gathering Storm was released. I'm not sure I'd go that far. And generally uh, what uh, he's advocating for in this opening post is interactivity of the games. But I'm not sure that that measure is consistent to the examples uh, he gives in terms of which were like the the good games in the series, uh, so to speak. Because you do have a fair amount of interactivity, even with the leaderheads in like Civ 5, for example. Uh, for all of Civ 5's flaws, there are, uh, there are some interesting things you would see with the leaders. I think they were Can more. You... I think they were more expressive than the Civ Six leaders, at least. Yeah. Can you have a Renaissance before you've had a Dark Age? <laughs> I mean, in principle, I don't see why not. It depends <laughs> on. You if... can have a Dark Age at any time, at least according to Civ standards, lol. <laughs> but no, I mean, I would imagine that anything that sufficiently sets a series or a, you know a country or whatever back could reasonably can be construed as a dark age. I don't think that's like a technically incorrect usage well, of the I'm, term. I'm looking at, uh, at Bibor's or Biborb's uh, uh, four ages, and they are the originals, the upgrades, the Renaissance, 
then the dark ages, then a new dawn. So uh, I'm just like, I don't know. Is, is I it mean, really I think a, that's a, a, if you haven't had a, a downgrade, they go from upgrade to Renaissance. I'm just kind of like, I, don't I think that's fine. If you have a, uh, if you're taking the stance that Bivar is, this is consistent with Bivar's stance. All right. Uh, so I don't, I don't have a problem with that in particular. I'm going to argue with the semantics. You can have a dark age anytime. <laughs> I, All you have to do is crater your product and it's a dark age. I, uh, I agree that the uh, terminology is a little off, but I don't think that's as so. No, it, yeah, it's not. Plus, there were a lot of changes in the Alpha Centauri and Civ IV uh, also, exchanges. Alpha Centauri, I think, came out before Civilization Three, didn't it? Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I saw somebody playing Alpha Centauri recently. It is uh, the interface has not aged well. Like what? Like you mean on a stream? Yeah. Like, you have to, like, right-click to move units and right-click again to move the unit. It's very different than modern standards for unit and interface control. Yeah, UI has never really been for Axis's calling card. It was at its peak in Sephir, uh, but I think some of the folks who thought about that moved on since then. Become yeah, more I, style over I substance. I still miss being able to put things in construction queues by just dragging and dropping them. I must be able to do that by holding a button and clicking once and having which button it is uh, or whether it adds to the top or the bottom of the queue was so fast. I just it it baffles me how like dragging and dropping is such a seemingly simple thing to do, but yet like they won't do it. And like Civ 5 and Civ 6 had these convoluted systems where you have to like click arrows to move things back and forth in the queues. It's like, I just want to drag it to where I want it. Yeah. Now, I do know that for a large portion of the Civ 5 and Civ 6 development cycles, there has been an ad on the Firaxis website for a lead UI developer. So I'm sure that has something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have the expertise, you just do the best you can. I mean, I'm not going not gonna to harp on them too much if that's the case. Although I, I think mean, they now... They an issue, they're trying to address it, it's fine. I think nowadays they're called UX developers or something else, user experience. Yeah. I guess because... Uh, the UI is always bad, and they were like, we got to get away from this usage. I don't know. Well, I think they also want to consider more than just uh, like the input stuff. Yeah, U- UX is a more broader like category than just UI, because it also encompasses like more aspects of how the user interacts with the game. Yeah, like presentation of information and such as well. Yeah. And that stuff can make a big difference on its own. If you have like mouse over information versus no information versus having to navigate multiple menus and uh, you know, what's appropriate for each of those. Like you might say that, you know, navigating menus, uh, like multiple clicks is never appropriate, but if you're going to open up like a civilpedia entry and read like a three page documentation of a complex mechanic, that's probably where that belongs. Uh, whereas a lot of more things should be just mouse over information. Yes, unlike Crusader Kings 3, which is like, here is a wall of text for, to, that will pop up to explain the thing you're currently trying to do. <laughs> and then it will disappear, and you will have no clue how to bring it back when it comes time to actually use that mechanic uh, 20 hours later. Well, let me put it this way. If for whatever reason, for Access Society to stroll up to me and be like, hey, could you give me a recommendation on which company to go to in order to see a good example of UI? I don't think Paradox would be topping my list. <laughs> I'm not sure it would even be in the top 50. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I would struggle to think of 50 games offhand on the spot like that anyway, but I would like deliberately move Paradox out of any top category. 
Because in some ways, like Paradox is better, but in a lot of ways, Paradox UI is worse than Civ UI. Well, and it's it's hard for just this sort of game because there's just not that much on the market to like look at as examples or even to poach, you know, designers and developers from. Although, you know, with all the the new, um, you know, forex and historical strategy games that are coming out now, that you know could hopefully change in the near future as some of these uh, studios hopefully do come up with different ideas. You know, we've got humankind, we've got old world, uh, you know, a few other things. So yeah, hopefully the competition will, world. yeah, hopefully the competition in the marketplace now will drive improvement and in innovation. The problem is amplitude is not that great at UI either. Um, I would argue that there are uh, just slightly above average in the game design department. But their UIs typically have problems. Well, they can drag back the guys who made Warlords 2 and Warlords 3. That'd be nice. Or just look at the games and say, how does the UI work here? Yeah, of course. But that means you need to get like some sort of idea of which ones are the good UI, so to speak. Because see, people have different opinions on what constitutes a good UI. Like I'm a lot more concentrated on the input efficiency and playability of the game Whereas other people care about the presentation a lot more. Yeah, ultimately, I, I think they're all important, uh, but it really matters what you want to emphasize too. I think you can it's do both of, if you do it right. But if you like want to put a game on a phone, then I mean, you could still also design the UI to have input efficiency. But in practice, it, people rarely bother. It's crazy to think of like like the original Homeworld, right, with three dimensional movement in a tactical strategy game that came out in like what 1999 2000 something like that and like worked fine <laughs> but now we just have so many problems with ui it's it's crazy that something like that could exist more than 20 years ago and uh uis are still so bad and i think it's just the dearth in this particular uh, branch of video games because yeah. the other games have managed good uis from 2000 until now like there are certainly people who could do it and do it well uh, they're just not being picked up by strategy gaming, uh, especially in a turn-based strategy gaming, typically. Yeah, and how much of, of that those design philosophies necessarily translate to you know large-scale strategy games? Well, some does. So, like input efficiency is going to be useful anywhere, uh, in, in you just adjust for the type of game you are playing. But all that is is the consideration for how much work the player has to do to to interact with the game, to do basic tasks in the game. And then, like, try to minimize the frustration of doing those inputs. Like, that conceptually is not too different game to game. Uh, Maybe implementing it is. Uh, You have to understand uh, the strategy games in order to create that, because you need to understand what players need to do or want to do in the game. Uh, But from a UI design perspective, that's probably not too hard conceptually. It's more an implementation thing. I'm not sure what people are getting at here with the interactivity. Like, well, uh, somebody eventually does like just flat out ask uh, Bibor, like, uh, what is your point? And he finally clarifies. It's the, the last post in the thread as of the time that uh, we're talking. Uh, basically, he says Civ is about empire building, right? So where is the empire? Where are its citizens? Uh, civilizations are not about monuments. They're about people. So I, it, it seems like his point isn't so much about UI and interacting with other leaders, but like the lack of any sort of representation of the actual citizenry of your empire or having to actually meet any of their needs or, you know, desires, which is, you know, something that I myself have also complained about in the past. Like, I wish that these games would take more of a, you know, 
humanistic populist, you know, approach to their design where, you know, it is more about managing a population of people than about just, you know, kind of playing God. I guess civilization's emphasis has always been at the nation slash civil level though. And like in that frame, it's not clear to me why uh, Civ 4 is particularly ahead of the quote unquote dark ages of Civ 5 and early Civ 6. Even though I think Civ 4 is a better game overall, it's not because of that. I mean, I guess you have specialists or whatever, but you had specialists in Civ 5 too. And Civ, you Civ can 4. still farm them in Civ 6. The methodology is still different, but you still have tile micro in all three games. You still have like allocation of cities onto tiles to get resources. Like the, the population abstraction is quite similar between the games. Yeah, I, I know. Um, I, I think like to talk about examples of maybe the sort of things that, that we're talking about here, like, uh, you know, a go-to one is Civ 2, you know, being in the democracy government, like the Congress could actually overrule certain decisions that the player could make. Now, we could argue up and down about whether or not that's good game design, but... Uh, uh, well, I mean, you could just not play a democracy in Civ 2, so... Right, well, that would that was the, the cost-benefit, is if you don't want the Congress overruling your decisions, then you, you, you know, create a totalitarian state where you don't have to worry about that or fundamentalist uh, even, or other things. It, right. Yeah. Right. But, but even in, in the context of like Civ four, there were l- some little things that Civ four did that, that I think, you know, satisfy, uh, and there's things that all of them have done, but you know, like the civic system in, in Civ four, like, you know, especially when you were talking about things like em- the emancipation civic, where once any Civ anywhere, like had it, every other Civ wanted it, and you know they would get unhappy until you finally you know emancipated the population. And where every Civic had kind of its pros and cons, it wasn't just stacking a bunch of buffs. Like you know there were actual drawbacks to think about as well, besides just opportunity costs. Uh, another thing that I really miss about Civ Four, which was like in the game but they never really did anything with it, is they had the demographics. Of, uh, of your city where they had like the little bar in, in the bottom corner somewhere that would say like a certain percentage of your population is like from this civilization or is native born. Oh no, and, that actually mattered mechanically. Yeah. It, it would affect like happiness and stuff like that. Like if you went to war with another civilization, your city could be flipped by yeah, that. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it, it was something that would probably not come up unless you were playing at a very high difficulty level uh, because you'd have so many modifiers that would overwhelm that otherwise. Well, I mean, uh, you're conquering a city and you don't wipe out the city, but now you have to deal with the unhappiness of foreign occupation and stuff but, too. Yeah, and but I mean, that was really common on any difficulty where you conquer you know, Civ, anything. Civ Six brought in, the, eventually brought back in like the loyalty mechanic, which mm. kind of fills a similar role to that. But there's still kind of a thing where once you capture and annex a city, like it's as if you know it's made up entirely of you know natural born citizens who are completely loyal to you you know pending yeah. loyalty pressure from the borders but the loyalty pressure would happen regardless of whether it's a captured city or a city that you just founded that is completely you know native born i, I think that's actually reasonable for a lot of history though and especially reasonable if your turns uh, are scaling like quite a few years per turn right like if by the time you capture a city and it comes out of unrest and everything. It, you know, it's been forty years, and it's been eighty years. Like, all, you know, all of a sudden, the, the people who are living there, if they have human lifespans, are different than the people who are conquered. And the longer you go, the more that becomes true. And I think I liked Civ Four's method with the nationality type of thing because what you had to do in a lot of cities was just 
at least for a while, get more happiness into the cities, which makes sense because, you you know, you want to settle the people down. And it, I, I, it feels like from a playing standpoint, it made more sense. I just took over this empire. They're less happy. But you could also hold on to it for a long time without it flipping, which is sometimes with the loyalty pressure now, you take a city and it instantly wants to flip. Well, Sith you know, had a you- mechanic whereby if you militarily conquered the city, it would not flip back. Uh, it would just revolt like crazy. Uh, but it would not like automatically flip, especially if you had, uh, well, if you had enough military pressure there, you could presence there, you could block revolts just solely with military presence. But that was prohibitively expensive. But as long as you, the city switched hands to you uh, through military conquest, it was not flipping back uh, unless you enabled that. But by default, it wouldn't. Yeah, I'm seeing it. it just so it was it's, a little bit less like weird than loyalty pressure, where a conquered city can just like immediately generate military units sometimes on par with what the target still has left in their empire uh so that, yeah that was a bit less awkward you can play around loyalty in civ 6 though i don't think loyalty in uh, civ 6 is too bad as a an abstraction for in the one unit per tile era it's just somehow it just made more sense in my head when we had the the civ 4 version whereas this whereas with the civ 6 it's just like this makes no sense. I am here. I've done this. Unless you go conquer the capital first and knock out this biggest bit of their culture producing. Which- yeah, I, I think that yeah, that is less intuitive in that like you have almost like a, a wave generator or something like pushing loyalty yeah. from either side. Uh, whereas Civ 4 had that to a degree, but it was still like percentage population in the city. <laughs> yeah, and intuitive. Thank you. Intuitive was the word I was looking for. and I just could not think of it. I think the big thing is like, uh, again, when you talk about things like the civics and stuff like that, and also the city flipping, it was something that was an internal pressure from within your own population that would force the player to have to take certain actions or not necessarily force, but, you know, very strongly encourage the player to take certain actions. And there's not as much of that. Definitely not in Civ 5, you know, maybe not as much in Civ 6. And I, I think, you know, Civ 6 brings some of it back. And that's why uh, Bibor here puts it in the New Dawn category. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 th- I think I understand like what he's getting at. It's just, it's a very, it's a game feel kind of thing. And it's a very difficult feeling to put into words. Yeah, I guess there were more tough choices too. And that does impact your perception of interactivity. Because like choices that are not hard to make uh, don't feel very meaningful. Whereas yeah, like just, how long you're holding out in slavery or how long you're like <laughs> what you're doing with the city or whatever, those are a bit more so. Yeah, and and just the way that Civ Four in particular frames certain like deci- you know policy decisions and and you know uh, infrastructure decisions in the game, it, it just it, it evokes different feelings than similar decisions in Civ Six. And again, it's just it's a hard thing to put into words. All I can really say is that it it feels different, and I I'm not entirely sure you know without maybe spending weeks or months reflecting on it. Uh, and probably going back and playing a, a crap ton of Civ Four for comparison, I, I don't know how to put it into words. You know what I think contributes to this a bit, even though I don't mind it as a system, is the uh, policy cards, because that that feels a lot more uh, like a like a board game type of thing than you're interacting with empires or your own nation or whatever, as you're you're flipping those cards into slots. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's largely at a whim, right? Like it you. I mean, the yeah, only you're like mix and matching, changing it. Yeah. 
Yeah, the only real limitation is uh, that, you know, if, if you don't do it on one of the turns where you uh, research completed researching a civic is you have that turn of anarchy, you know, you have to pay the gold to unlock it. But like other than that, like I think in, in the expansions, they made some policy cards that were like exclusive to certain governments or something like that. But uh, for the most yeah, part, they added just, ones that are special to dark ages yeah, and, such. Yeah, and that sort of stuff. But you, for the most part, for like 99% of the cases, you just swap in whatever combination of cards you want. Like you can have a, uh, a democratic government, but then still install a five-year planned economy card. Like, huh? Yeah. Although like, I, I get what you're, I get the complaint about it because it certainly doesn't feel the same way as the civic system feels. But it actually does have a lot of depth. Like, as a pure gameplay system, it's quite good. Uh, there's a lot of depth to it. There's a lot with the timing of when you get stuff or when you get cards that interact with what you're trying to do on the, you know, the, the long-term strategy planning layer or even the diplomacy layer in some cases. Like, oh, yeah. It's, and- a good, it's a strong system, but I can see how it feels a little bit less connected uh, to your your nation or the people of your nation than, like, you're going from... Uh, slavery to emancipation or you're going out of pacifism into free religion or organized religion or whatever or imagine going backwards from emancipation back into slavery in civ 4 like i mean (laughs) the the torches and pitchforks come out but you do something analogous in civ 6 you know like for example going from having the capitalism you know or free market uh economy card to installing that five-year planned economy and there's absolutely no pushback from within your civilization at all. It's just a change in modifiers. Well, in the game's modifier terms, there's no downside. So I would push back whatever the heck that is in the yeah. game. There's certainly no negatives. But but that's the sort of stuff that I think that, you know, Bibor is talking about here, which is that it, it you know, again, the, the feeling of Civ 4 was more of that you're, you know, you're, you're doing things to benefit or satisfy your population and not just you, the player. And there's a lot less of that in the later games. Yeah, I think you could rework the card system a bit to make those choices a little harder or to make them have like more significant or game altering positives, but also negatives that you have to play around if you take them. Uh, yeah, that, might, that actually might help a bit. Like an example of uh, I think, you know, example, maybe a positive example might come from humankind. So humankind has a government system where there's like four or five ideology axes in the game. And every policy decision that you make shifts one or more of those ideology axes in one direction or another. And then you get not only do you get the benefits of the individual policy, but then there's also benefits of the uh of being on one end of the ideological spectrum or the other. Uh, so for instance, there's a, a, a rationalist and a fundamentalism, you know, religious fundamentalism axis where those are the opposing things. And every, you know, religious policy that you might pass is going to shift your society in one direction or the other. So it isn't just that you, you don't just pick, Oh, we're a fundamentalist government, but then insert a bunch of policies that give you science boosts. It's no, you have to, pick the policies that then shape the ideology of your, uh, of your citizenry. And you can't just flip it 180 degrees on a dime. Like you would then have to spend the time and effort to gradually shift your policies back in the other direction. If for some reason you wanted to, uh, to go uh, to the other side of that axis. Just have a civil war like hearts of iron. 
Well, that's one thing that happened with the slavery and emancipation. It kind of made it feel more more like a living world. As the world changed around you, you had outside pressure to change your society. Yeah. And there's nothing like that here. I mean, the leaders will react to if you're on one of the other. I mean, okay, when you take secret societies, the leaders react to things like, oh, I see you have the mark of me. Oh, or I see you're my brother. But they don't really react so much to the government you're in, which in previous civs they have. So just like little things, but it makes the world feel like it's more of a real world instead of just a board game ish. I thought Civ Five did that maybe the best, uh, the ideology type things out of them. Yeah. Just because, like, it's true that earlier in history, the type of government or the type of monarchy or, you know, that, that this particular area is a republic or whatever really didn't matter as much for real politic. Uh, but once you started getting into modern times, it's it started to matter a lot. It started to be decisive in some cases, even. So, yeah, yeah. And, and we can just flip over to this new government without any anarchy or rioting. It's like, in real life, that's not going to work like that. Yeah, I, I feel like there was like a, a bit in like maybe the life of Brian or something like that, Monty Python, where, you know, there are all, all the people in, in Jerusalem are, are talking about being, you know, Israelites or whatever. And then the Romans come in and they're like, oh, I guess we're Roman now. But like nothing else changes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, to a lot of the common folk, that was the case. As long as they weren't getting like looted to heck by the militaries that were <laughs> fighting over the land. As long as you pay your taxes, Rome doesn't care what you do. Yeah. Although you definitely did not want to be uh, near armies that were quote-unquote living off the land. Because that land was your land that they were living off of. <laughs> so, yeah, you don't want to be on the front. But otherwise, you know, I... I was kind of surprised. I, I'll mention it. There's a uh, there's a mod in EU4 that changes whole like total overhaul mod, and one of the base religions is like the policy cards in Civ 6, where they're like relatively minor for the most part bonuses that you slot in at will. And I was shocked in the mod because the mod like made the bonuses substantial, but also had downsides that were enough to constrain your ability to use certain options. I was surprised at how ju- just how much more interesting that made the exact same mechanic. It was literally like the same religion, except it changed an icon and it changed what the bonuses do. And man, it was a lot more interesting. And I had to spend a lot more time thinking about how to allocate stuff uh, when I had negatives that, requ- that just made me not capable of using a certain type of unit. Or, you know, I, I can't I can't annex my subjects with these <laughs> penalties uh, to diplomatic representation or whatever. Uh, so even something like that would go along with uh, yeah, just there, taking a look at the impact of the policy cards as they are now. And, and there's one other example uh, of something that I would really like to see come back to, to civilization or something like along the same lines. And ironically, it actually comes from Civ V, which is in B- uh, Bybor's Dark Ages, which was uh, the, the We Love the King Day mechanic in Civ V, where your ci- the people of your city would demand a specific luxury resource. And once you connected that luxury resource uh, to your trade network, that city went into the Wheel of the King day for 10 turns or 20 turns or or however the heck long it it lasted, which would boost happiness, boost production, you know, boost science output, boost the economy, all that stuff. So it it was this this real simple little mechanic where the people in your empire want something. And if you give it to them, you get rewarded. And there was no penalty for not ever connecting that resource, but it, it, it was just this little something that made it feel like your the people in your city had some degree of of agency. And that that's something that unfortunately did not translate into Civ 6. And I would very much like to see more things like that. 
I think that's actually been in the majority of the games in the series, just it's, not tied to luxury resources, but to other things. I think been, I distinctly remember hilarious things like We Love the Dictator Day in earlier sets. Like yeah. it, it would change it based on your government type. But I, I, I think in previous games, it was just if you if you crossed a certain happiness threshold within the city, it triggered the the We Love the King Day. So it wasn't something like explicit that you did. Or something explicit that they wanted. It was just you build enough coliseums or whatever, and and you you trip over that condition. Now sometimes it wasn't that easy to maintain though, so it was yeah. still like something that you actually did interact with the game with in order to get if you wanted it. True, you but I, it was worth the I, I also yeah. But what I, what I really liked about the Civ Five system was that it required like explicit agency and action from the player to like it, it's it's like the city gives you a little mini quest you know in the same way that the city states would give you their little mini quests to earn favor like your cities would do the same thing and i you know i'd, I'd like to see more of that sort of thing in the games where you're the people of your city want things and you either give it to them and they like you more for it or you don't give it to them and you have problems uh we love the king day is an og civilization um Thing. Yeah, because yeah, because when you're talking about, it, I can see the little screen where it would show the parade marching in front of your city, and you know, we love the blood ever day. We love the dictator day. <laughs> it was in Civ, Civ Two, Civ Three, Civ Four, Civ Five, and Call to Power. Yeah, even though Call to Power doesn't technically count, but I mean, I, I think we love the dictator day is kind of like by definition every day, <laughs> or else uh, you go to jail. Yeah. Well, I guess the bonus happens when they mean it. Question mark. Yeah, I guess. It has done various different things over time, like in Civ 1, it basically pushed up the um, effectiveness of the city to the next level. Like, if you were in despotism, the city would run like a monarchy, and if it was in a monarchy, it would run like a democracy. So, Huh, that's interesting. Much better than it was in Civ 5, where it was like, oh, you get uh, increased growth rate for 25%, for by 25%. Was that all it did? I thought it also like affected happiness and production and stuff like that, too. I could be wrong, though. It's been years since I've played Civ Five. Yeah, I don't remember anymore. I'm looking at the, the wiki page right now. But again, it, it, it's a simple little thing, but it, it's one of those small things that kind of makes a world of difference in terms of making it feel like the people in your empire are actually people. Yeah, I see what you mean. I could easily see expanding this system to where, you know, the, the cities don't just want, you know, particular resources, but maybe individual cities want particular policies. You know, maybe you have a city that's like completely surrounded by farms and they want more policies that favor agriculture as opposed to, you know, industry or other things. And then you might actually have different cities in your empire that want different things and they might be mutually exclusive. So then it's up to the player to weigh, well, which ones, you know, do I satisfy and which ones, you know, can I safely ignore without, you know, starting a civil war or having a revolt? Yeah. Give the, give your, your, um, dang it. Why can't I speak? Give your home cities the same kind of quests that city states give now and then bring back the Civ five city state quests for them. Yes, That's right. You're going to conquer yourself. Well, the, the I, I, I'm kidding, obviously. I know, but I don't <laughs> think the modern city states ask for others to be conquered anymore. Yeah, but you said Civ Five, right? Yeah, you bring you bring the Civ, <laughs> Civ Five city states back as the city states in replacement for the Civ Six city state mechanics that you gave to your regular cities. 
Well, I could I could totally see like for example, maybe you have a border city on like a heavily fortified border with an enemy that says, you know, yes, we want a war because we're tired of, you know, living in this demilitarized zone. Go and conquer that other civ so that we can, you know, not be constantly living in fear. Now that's my kind of city. Or alternatively, you know, that that same city, you know, it could be a random die roll. That same city could also hypothetically, you know, ask for a, a political de-escalation of the tensions, you know, well, as some kind screwed. of, the heck of <laughs> right. But then you, you but then you could also hypothetically have two cities on the same border that want the different things. One but wants war and the other wants de-escalation. That well, de-escalate would, their subsidies. That get would, wrecked. That would require having an internal politics diplomacy, which uh, we should probably stay away from in Civ Six or in Civilization until we can get the external diplomacy working in a way that isn't yeah. completely garbage. The only game I've ever played that had a good that I really liked the internal, uh, pol- like politics was CK Two, and that that would not be in the same. Um, I mean, that just wouldn't fit in the Civ game. Yeah, yeah, it w- it's not the same scope. Yeah, yeah, we don't we don't want, need court politics in our uh, our Civ games. I mean, what are you going to do? You get to 2020 and you're um, marrying off um, what? Oh, no. There's no way this can end well. <laughs> marrying off uh, Bush's daughter to, who would it be? Prince Harry, I guess? Not if you're trying to claim the throne of Sweden. I did recently learn that Sweden does have a very significant navy for its size, but... Oh, they have a fair amount of coastline, so wouldn't hurt yeah. to have something to deal with it. And Finland has a huge air force compared to its size. And they also have like 600,000 reservists. So anyway, right, that we'll, is off we'll topic. the inheritance law. We'll have them change their inheritance law to seniority. And then we'll, we'll that, just merge every country through royal marriages in modern times. Lol. <laughs> why make I don't, it? Se- I don't think CKT works here. Make it seniority because Biden is the oldest president. Well, it just tends to unify empires, but the problem, like we're we're making their uh, law seniority. Of course, once we get the land, we'll change it. Okay, because I think we'd all lose to the Queen of England at that point. But yeah, well, she doesn't currently hold the titles elsewhere. See, so probably not. No, she only holds the titles. She doesn't have the political power anymore. Yeah, but we're talking about uh, CK two rules. Not not real life, obviously. We're not dealing in real life here. The British monarchy is in personal union with, like, more than ten other countries. Yeah. See? We just need it like that, but with uh, all the control. Keep centralizing it. Okay, I've lost the plot. I've lost the plot. Let's move to the next topic. (laughs) (laughs) I think we lost the plot a little while ago, but okay. Okay, well, uh, I guess kind of speaking of uh, internal politics, uh, our next topic (laughs) is that uh, user Layron on Civ Fanatics has posted a thread titled Single Player Hot Seat for a Better Challenge, in which this user says, Recently, I've been playing Hot Seat with myself, with two players and six AIs, so I can give myself more of a challenge than the AI. Has anyone tried this or... Uh, and is it fun or is it just tedious? So I, I, I guess my first question is, are you playing against yourself or is it more of like a team game where you have two civs and then the other AI is in a team with the other six civs? So I, I'm, I'm a little unclear about what the setup is here. That was the very um, first post was that question. Yeah, if you want a challenge, then obviously yeah, you're so not going to be teaming yes, up. There, that's the idea is to play against yourself. Yeah, uh, I mean, that... 
that could be challenging, but as someone who has tried playing many and many actual tabletop board games against myself in order to learn the rules, uh, I find that, uh, well, A, I always win, and um, <laughs> B, uh, when I go and I play that board game against an actual person, I realize that uh, they don't play the game the way that I play the game, so... And um, you also can be like, you, you can't stop yourself from predicting yourself. Right. Yeah. Unless you're like literally rolling dice to decide what you're doing, in which case just play against an AI. Yeah. Or yeah, just play you, against the dice in the first place. Yeah. You can't really go to war against yourself because you know exactly what troops you have, you know? Yeah. And, and where you know they're going to be allocated and what uh-huh. you know, they're going to focus fire down. And yeah. Yeah. Hey, me, would you like to against, go to war against me? Hmm. Give me 10 turns to prepare. Yeah. The only time I do this actually is in Dominions 5. And I don't do it as like just trying to beat myself, but I will deploy troops and see what actually works against other things. Because sometimes it's not clear if you're trying to come up with a particular countermeasure that that countermeasure is actually functional. But like I can also, in, on top of doing like just testing to see if this strategy will work generally, I can do my best effort at what I think my opponent has and then use my own nation against that and try to see, okay, you know, what might they do that could screw me over? Uh, what can I definitely beat them if they only bring and that sort of thing and get some picture of how likely it is I can deal with that, that opponent. Um, but that's not really playing against yourself in a vacuum. That's kind of working with information that you have based on another player still. Yeah. Now that's I, the closest I, I can think to something that, where I actually do uh, operate turns against myself. I, I do play hot seat games of Civ against myself, but that's usually for the purpose of uh, testing like certain scenarios uh, for the purposes of writing the strategy guides that I write, you know, for things like testing, like how certain mechanics work where I can't necessarily rely on the map or AI uh, giving me favorable conditions to test that in a timely fashion. So yeah. sometimes I'll go into the world builder, I'll contrive a map, uh, and starting conditions, and then I'll play a few rounds against myself. Sometimes I'll just start a new game against myself to test out things. You know, like if the uh, if if I have some civs that have some early unique units, and I want to see how they fare against each other on the battlefield. You know, I'll play you know the ancient and classical era against myself. You know, playing as two or three different civs in like a four player you know quick. Uh, paced game but i i don't do it for the challenge i just do it to test mechanics and sometimes yeah. to try out different experimental approaches to uh playing as a particular sieve yeah i guess I, it is mostly testing for me ultimately too because i'm not really trying to beat myself i'm trying to figure something out yeah and the best way to do that is to you know yeah. play both sides of the game so that you make sure that the other side does the thing that you need them to do yeah Otherwise, I'll get that like one game where, you know, Montezuma just absolutely wants to be my friend and doesn't forward settle my my cities. And I'm like, what? Come on. This is not how Monty works. Well, he was like that in Civ 4 if you shared his religion and you like if you didn't fight him like immediately and you shared his religion. There's a good chance you could just be friends with him all the time, which sucked because he's terrible tech rate. But you could do it if you wanted and I will also say that playing hot seat with yourself will really drag down the uh, the pace of the game. Like it takes a <laughs> when you are manually playing every Civ's turn on the board, uh, games take a heck of a lot longer to play. If you thought a game of Civ took a long time to play now, just wait till you're trying to be four Civ simultaneously and you have to take those turns in sequential order in real time. Yeah, you get to the third or fourth Civ. What was I doing here again? I forgot. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
Uh-huh. And uh, on that topic, I've, there's a poster, a few threat, uh, a few posts down from the. Uh, there's a post from the Marshmallow Bear saying, uh, "I do this with 18 players, all playing as myself." Like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't imagine. Like that game must take a year to play. How do you, <laughs> how do you finish such a game? Alternately, he's an AI himself and has partitioned his brain at least 18 times. Yeah, perhaps. So the Civ Fanatics clever bot. I don't think Cleverbot can partition itself that many times. No, you're right. Probably a better example would be what uh, IBM Watson. I think IBM Watson could probably do it, but I don't know how effective it would be. Because I don't think IBM Watson can play Civ at all, can it? I don't know. Uh, there is also a post uh, later down here from uh, PokeyHL saying that Civ 6 hot seat is ruined because of the pop-ups that come between turns. They totally block all of the AI actions, so you have no idea what units moved or what any of the AIs did during their turn. Uh, and yes, having played quite a bit of hot seat against myself to test things, that is a very frustrating issue. Uh, like, where the heck did that army go? It just disappeared into the fog of war, and I couldn't even see what direction it went. I think if, if you're looking for a human challenge, you can you should probably, you know, play multiplayer online with another player. You know, hopefully you can find someone you know who will play the game and, you know, actually play in, in good uh, good faith with you, as opposed to, you know, some randos on the internet who may or may not play the game in good faith. I don't know how good the, the, the random online community for Civ is, because I never play online multiplayer uh, with randos in the lobby. It's basically, oh, I lost a city, I'm quitting. Yeah, I imagine as much. So it's like the the high versus low scale Dominions games where the advanced players just take the city from a rage quitter and that let them rage quit, beat down the AI for an insurmountable lead, and the game will be between two or three good players who manage to do that to the bad players, and then there you go. It's sort of like a real game with an extra expansion phase. And the expansion phase is usually the best part of the game, so maybe yeah. that works out for the better. Yeah, you're just expanding into rage quitter cities rather than building settlers, so it's basically the same thing. Today we're going to talk about, or I guess not today. This this topic is about be civ, certain civs being more defensive and difficult to conquer than others. This is from the Civ Reddit, and uh, I. Cannot read this person's name, so I will omit it. All I see is a Maori symbol next to it. It's I K N U F, Iknuf, or something like that. That works. Uh, Hopefully, someday the internet will get to the point where uh, forum users can post pronunciation guides or like record a little clip of them pronouncing what their name is supposed to be. Come on, for who guides? I mean, at some point, we're all just going to be numbers given us to given to us by the government. So, but anyway. Which Civ is the most defensive slash hardest to conquer? It looks like the obvious choice is Vietnam because of their cheap encampment replacement and their drive out the aggressors perk. Not to mention that you can define it, you combine it with Defender of the Faith. Yeah, Vietnam is a tough nut to crack in this game for sure. Somebody else mentioned Gaul. I've seen Nubia mentioned. That's just because they're difficult to get rid of early. Their archer uh, is really s- good. Yeah, I see some saying Maya just because of how close all of their cities uh, are. Like, you get even more overlapping bombardment than yeah. uh, you would get from, you know, even some other AIs. And then I think there's also a combat bonus for being within, like, six turns of or six uh, 
tiles of the capital? I think it's ten, actually. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Australia is mentioned because extra production uh, when you get declared on, and Australia has huge science output. Yeah, so they can just pump out replacement units, uh, you know, faster than you can kill them and replace your own. America gets a mention too, and I think that's fair. Uh, if you're getting a combat bonus on your home continent, your cities are probably on your home continent, so uh, they could be quite annoying there. Something that's not mentioned is Mapuche, because it's not so much defensive so much, but if you go in and you're in a golden age, and that's that thing that they have, that they're stronger against a golden age, you can grind to an absolute halt. And it's, you know, the mechanics are such that invading another uh, sieve, you, you typically want to do that in a golden age or mm-hmm. at the very least in a normal age so that you can actually maintain the loyalty of those captured cities long enough to uh, take control of them. Because if you're if you're fighting in a dark age or a normal age and they just overwhelm your loyalty, those cities are just going to flip right back to the original sieve in like a few turns unless you're really, really good at managing loyalty. Or you just take a few cities on the same turn. You leave one of them beat down and so it can't can't shoot at you. And then you just ignore it and move on. Yeah, you just get like three or four cities all down to zero health at the same time. And then on one turn, just take them all at once. I've almost never seen three not be good enough. As long as they're like relatively close to each other in some form of triangle. I've almost like you could do it intercontinentally. It doesn't matter. Like they're enough pressure from each other uh, to be functional along with a governor uh on the one that's actually still near opposing territory that it's functional yeah and if they're ai cities they will almost certainly be close enough together that they form a tight you know loyalty circle with each other well i don't think uh, players put their cities too far apart either for some of the reasons mentioned in this thread it's uh, easier to defend yourself if your the spaces between your cities is fewer like the cities have some overlapping fire uh you, you can make choke points a lot easier and uh, makes it harder for people to use a numbers advantage uh, locally to their advantage. Yeah. And it's easier to move between cities than respond. Uh, Plus like players rarely grow their cities quite large enough where they would utilize their full, uh, fully available tiles otherwise. So like you you generally want overlap. Uh, The only reason you wouldn't do it is if they just can't get fresh water or something like that. Can't get enough housing. If you don't do it, you don't space it a little more. But I think by default, I prefer cities either at or very close to minimum distance myself. I like how yeah. the very last post in the thread by HRE is great. It says, Holy Roman Civ 4. <laughs> he got downloaded <laughs> for that, yeah, too. Civ- <laughs> Holy Roman Civ 4 is the hardest Civ to capture in Civ 6, for sure. Yeah, it's pretty much impossible. Well, I just They thought- are certainly annoying in Civ 4. It's hilarious because of the name of the user. Yes. Um, I see Inca. Well, this is technically our Civ, and the opening poster does not specify that this is for Civ 6. Yes, he does. Actually, the it, tag, there's a tag. Yeah. The tag says oh, 6, six to discussion. Seven. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Which, by the way, if you're looking for uh, discussion topics in r slash Civ, you want to use that one instead of the other discussion tag, because the other discussion tag has about five posts in it, and they're all from four weeks ago. Just. But I see Inca mentioned here as sort of a double-edged sword because of their ability to create paths through the mountains. Can other players use those? I keep forgetting. I, I know I, I tested this at one point. I think the answer was no. I think that it says they can here. I haven't interacted with that in so long. But also, it's a um, it's a unique improvement. So if you capture the city, I think the, their little tunnel mountain road things disappear. So... 
Mm, that seems like something we need to check. I don't know if that's true. I will check it in the wiki. Uh, if I can remember how to spell this thing by myself. Yeah, another one in here is Grand Columbia. They are definitely hard. The, the, Grand Columbia is tough to fight regardless of whether it's an offensive or defensive war because they're like especially back when they first came out and like they had the uh no it was not a conquistador what the heck was their general called well they, they had their their unique great general <laughs> that'd be uh that would be an interesting choice <laughs> but it didn't replace the regular Com- great their general commodores. So, yeah yeah that was it yeah uh which is the, weird um, because commodore is a naval term but yeah but anyway i remember when grand columbia first came out like you could get the unique general replacement but it didn't actually replace the regular great general so you could have both and their effects stacked and it was crazy i'm pretty sure that got fixed so q h or q h a uh it's a hua pack so it's a p a q oh i was right cool sorry go ahead oh nothing i was just wondering if you found an answer to whether or not they're usable by other civs and if they stay on the map after cities are conquered uh, cannot be pillaged or removed. Well, I, when I, it says cannot be removed, does that mean cannot be removed like by a builder or it means they stay on the map permanently no matter what? Because I, I think that just means a builder can't remove it. I think it's still automatically deleted if the, if the city is captured or raised. But I, I could be wrong. Uh, your opponents can use the mountain tunnels built by you. Huh, okay. I think it's permanent because it's... Uh, a mountain tunnel variant. Okay, we, the, yeah, and the the wiki doesn't actually specify, so I will. Uh, okay, well, in that case, I think mountain tunnels are like actually permanent on the map. So if, if they're just a variant of that, then it does stand to reason that they would also be permanent. Anyway, I, I would like to give out a um, an honorable mention to uh, Maori and uh, Phoenicia. Uh, not in that there are particular military threats, but just the simple fact that their cities tend to be scattered all over the map. Uh, completely eliminating them can be extremely time-consuming and tedious because you got to scour the map, usually with a navy, and embark units for all of their cities. And uh, that's a pain in the butt. So I typed in um, uh, destroyed by city capture. And it gave me a UNESCO document, so uh, I don't think this question has been answered in a way that I can find it easily on Google. All right, well, to a hot seat game. (laughs) I imagine it's probably on some form somewhere. I'm pretty sure that I tested it at one point, and it wouldn't let me go through the tunnel, but that might be because, like, the Incan city was like on the other side of the tunnel and maybe like I can't I couldn't maybe the reason I couldn't move through was because the city blocked movement and not because I wasn't actually allowed to go through the tunnel okay because I I have vivid recollections of that map and yeah it was like a little city tucked in between like three mountains with like one tunnel I uh, have found a thread that says tunnels can be destroyed by storms oh and even if they are, land trade routes don't seem to care. They keep using the path. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I think a big part of that is because they, they assign their paths when you create the uh, the route. So unless it cancels yeah. the route, 
the, the route wouldn't change. I would assume, though, that I, I wonder if the next time you reassign that route, if it will follow the same path through the pillage tunnels or if it has to find another way around. Well, in the next post, it says, uh, I had a Huapagnan appear to be obliterated by a mega colossal eruption and built a ski resort on the tile without realizing it was gone. But my units can still move right through. Mm. So maybe they just never reset the, you know, impassable terrain flag. This was back in this was back in 2019, so it may have been fixed or not, because I know Civ Six has a lot of lingering bugs that were not fixed after New Frontiers ended. Yeah, and that is that's a very extreme edge case right there. The developers might not have been aware of that unless people specifically brought it to their attention. I wish we could see the the bug report uh, log at this point, because I'm sure it's well over 100. Anybody else got any other ideas for particularly hard civs to conquer in Civ 6? I think in general, just anybody with a lot of science. Yeah, gotten Korea and Congo. And in general, any civ that has like a really strong mountain or like certain rough terrain start biases can be tough to crack simply because, you know, those mountains are going to create a lot of bottlenecks that are going to restrict your movement into and through their territory. Um, and, uh, yeah, and anytime you have to invade a, a sieve where, like, all their cities are completely surrounded by uh, forested hills, uh, good luck getting any attacks in with any of your siege units. Or uh, any sieve with an early, unique... Uh, dang it. Early unique unit that is in the melee class because that means their city base attack will be higher yeah assuming that the unique unit has a higher uh, combat strength and isn't just one of those things that has just a funky promotion or something yeah like congos wouldn't be particularly although they're still annoying but congo usually is stronger anyway for some obscure reason well not being able to kill their swords with range early on is a bit annoying I suspect it's because they are not allowed to build faith districts. They uh, don't bother wasting any resources on it, so they just do better overall. Yeah, they'll build their campuses and commercial hubs instead, and maybe spend some production on units instead of uh, holy sites. Making the AI play better by constraint. That's usually how you do it. (laughs) That's true. It's the easiest way to make this kind of AI work better is by limiting its choices based on the situation. And um, it has the downside of making the AI highly predictable if you can figure out what the conditions are. Yeah, just do machine learning training. Well, well sure. If you have 2,000 hours of compute computation time and a very expensive computer that can run a adaptive AI that is capable of producing commands to a non-adaptive AI to function in certain ways i guess i think i'll see it before long i don't think i'll see it like in an official release build from developers because it'll be unplayably strong but i think i'll see it well maybe it'll just be oh we ran it half as long and that's the easier difficulty (laughs) that might be the case yes i think the problem with that though is that it would disproportionately favor the early game because the computers would not be in a good enough position to use most of the late game techs and abilities if they didn't get through the early game. Well, it depends how much you train it. 
Well, if you're training, well, you could just start games in the later eras for the training purposes. But I don't know how representative that's going to be to training an AI to play through the entire game. Probably not very. Or alternatively, just make custom maps where you know you you precede them with um you know already having an established empire and then just let the AI play from there. I think there would be a problem with that too, but I'm not sure what it would be. I think if you set up pre if you set up predetermined maps, then the AI doesn't learn how to handle randomness. Oh, we don't have to go into details of how this might be accomplished ultimately, I don't think. I am not in a condition to easily uh, think about this. Oh, Mackie is muted. Uh oh. She can't just tell us to get out then. It's a Mackieism, right? There she is. Sorry, urgent call of nature. That's oh, fine. No. Everybody's got to do it. <laughs> outro time? Yep, outro time. All right. This has been episode 402 of Polycast. I'm Monica Lua. And uh, with me this week, uh, Candace Albinus. I did too much think. I go sleep. <laughs> Mega Bears fan. Time to go feed a baby. And me and team. I'll show you a hot seat. Gotta love babies. Apparently I have a tortoise to go out and feed as well. Ah. We, we set up a, a ring camera outside of his uh, burrow in the backyard so that we would get uh, notifications when he goes in and out. It's still not super reliable. We got to figure out uh, if there's some settings or something that we can tweak to make it more consistent. It's, you know, set up to trigger, you know, the motion sensor is, is configured for a person not uh, oh, yeah. Not a tortoise. Is so. that is is that what the Metal Gear Solid noise was in the background? Uh, that was a text message. Uh, but yeah, that's the Metal Gear Solid noises. Those are my phone. <laughs> yeah, I always I always enjoy it when that happens. The the call. If I actually get a phone call, I, I also have the codec call ring as my uh my ringtone. Oh, that's what I heard earlier. I am trying to procure the. Civilization Five city has grown noise, like that little uh, chime sound that it gives every time your city grows. But I haven't been able to find it on the internet, so I'm gonna have to reinstall Civ Five and the download tools and such to use as my ring to or use as my text message noise. Because I don't really want to do the the Civ Four somebody discovered liberalism noise. That's the best noise. It's so awful. It makes you feel so awful. You know what you should do is a combination of that and the uh, discordant warhorn noise. From, I knew that was uh, coming. Total War yeah. There's also the uh, somebody else has completed a wonder that you were constructing noise. Which one? That's the same thing in Civ 4. Is it the same thing as the liberalism noise? I think so. Oh, no, it isn't. No, it's not. No, not at all. I the, think uh, proving the world is round is, though. Yeah, there are three times when that noise is made. And uh, one is world is round. One is liberalism. And I think one of them is tile destroyed by global warming. <laughs> yeah, you get that a fair bit in the late game. <laughs> I don't. Maybe it wasn't that because it would. I feel like it would have been going off way more often if it was. Maybe. Yeah. There's there's also a, a an unpleasant sound for when one of your cities gets captured or or raised. I, that might be the same sound too. Not in so far. That was a unique one. But it's it's also they have the sounds of like the raising that plays over top of it so i don't know if that's if that's one sound effect or if that's two sound effects playing on top of one another 
Yeah, in, yeah. in Civ 4, it was probably one sound effect. In Civ 5, it was probably multiple. Civ 4 unit loss noises were awful, too. <laughs> Civ 5 was the best. It's like way too much for just losing a unit. But yeah, I still liked it. <laughs> it's a pretty good sound. It practically plays a whole dirge. Yeah. I also like um, after Gods and Kings when they added the turn rollover noise in multiplayer in Civ 5. I really enjoy that noise. And I can't find that one on the internet either or I'd make that my text noise. That one should at least be pretty easy to uh, capture by just setting up a hot seat game. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the polycast at thepolycast.net.